Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. Today, we are going to be working through Lesson 5.5 on Pentecostalism and racial division in the United States, as well as discussing the assigned reading from Lawson for today. Throughout the course and Historical Theology 1, we have taken some time to consider not only the positives of Christian history and the doctrinal developments uh, during the course of Christian history, but also a number of more negative outcomes of Christian history, ranging from, in Historical Theology 1, the conversion of Constantine and the resulting evils that happened through the joining of the state and the church, uh, to some of the uh, problematic treatments in Historical Theology 2 of the Anabaptists through religious persecution and wars of religion. One major theme that we have been talking through this semester has been the question of the hierarchical or egalitarian structure of Christianity. Beginning with the Reformation in particular, uh, two seemingly incompatible themes were increasingly highlighted in Christian life, and that was, on the one hand, a strong tendency toward hierarchical structures that had been evident in uh, the hierarchy within the church, in the church willing to submit and follow the state, um, and even in some quarters with the growth of Second Blessing Wesleyanism, uh, with the idea of a hierarchy of more elite Christians and more common Christians. On the other hand, we've also considered various egalitarian tendencies, the tendency to provide communion to the entire church body, laity and priests in both kinds, the tendency to translate the Bible into common languages by the reformers so that all peoples might have access. We've seen Reformation-inspired political movements that sought rights for peasants and several women who took opportunities to have an increasing role not only in church affairs, but in social and political affairs like caring for refugees with Catherine Zell. These two themes that stand in tension with one another certainly surfaced in this country during the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and even 1900s in the history of slavery and segregation in this country. I've already shared a little bit how the doctrine of the Holy Spirit among Pentecostals and the revivalist spirit of some of the earliest Wesleyans did have tendencies against the uh, sustained and systematic racism found throughout this country's history. And yet I have also shared instances where uh, these patterns have been a minority position. I've shared that initial abolitionist impulses dwindled, um, and I've shared how despite the strengths of some Pentecostals in unifying various races in the early 1900s, and despite the fact that this was a global phenomenon, uh, there are many other Pentecostal groups that failed uh, to overcome racial barriers. Parham, for example, is, is one representative of this failure. Today I want to explain a little bit more about what's going on in the background. What biblical and theological appeals were white Christians making in this country and in Europe in order to defend uh, their atrocious practices of systemic racism? Uh, this will also serve as a pivot point as we begin to look at global Christianity and the resurgence of Christianity outside of the borders of European peoples, 
where it had been dwindling since the Islamic conquests began uh, in the 8 and 900s. So several passages of scripture were central uh, in the appeals of white Protestants uh, in defense of their racist acts like slavery and segregation. These passages are evident in the 1600s, and I've actually seen them appealed to in a similar context within the last four years um, to defend certain views of immigrants that are equally bigoted. The first passage that is often appealed to is that of the Hamaitic curse. So in Genesis 9:25, after the flood, no doubt suffering extreme trauma, uh, Noah ends up getting drunk. And he passes out naked. And Ham sees his father and basically laughs at him, whereas Noah's other sons find a blanket and they back toward their father and cover him up without viewing his nakedness. And when Noah awakes, he curses not Ham, but Ham's son Canaan as a byproduct of Ham's sin. Well, Canaan obviously evokes the uh, imagery of the Canaanites who lost the promised lands to the Israelites. But by the time of the 1600s, the lineage of Canaan had been extended considerably, where many Christians believed that Africans were also descendants of Canaan, as well as certain other non-white groups of people. Now, in combination with Leviticus 25, 44 through 46, um, this Hamaitic curse led to the belief that Africans were cursed by God who desired them to be enslaved. Leviticus 25, 44 permits the people of Israel to have slaves from the surrounding nations, including the Canaanites, but denies them the ability to enslave Israelites. Uh, a pattern known as supersessionism involves... Christians replacing, uh, believing that the church replaces the role of Israel in such prophecies. And so many European Christians believed that they were therefore permitted to enslave peoples who were not Christian, or even after they became Christian, who were not from historically Christian people groups. Now, this appeal to the Hamaitic curse uh, was often also supplemented by New Testament teachings and Old Testament teachings concerning slavery. So in Genesis 17, for example, Abraham is said to possess bond servants who were brought into the covenant by Adam. Um, and this is used to support slavery and white priority in the covenant. Uh, whites were thought to be the slave owners of their bond servants who could still be brought into the covenant um, because they were related to Adam. Though admittedly, this theory of monogenesis the idea that all humans are descended from a single pair, Adam and Eve, began to come into question in the 1800s with modern advances in scientific theory, particularly that of evolution. A number of theories emerged about polygenesis, which suggested that different races emerged from different single pairs of humanoids. Adam and Eve might be the ancestors of white Europeans, but they were likely not the ancestors of Asians or Africans or Native Americans, according to these theories. In the New Testament, of course, we see continuing teachings by Paul towards slaves, and one particularly diffi difficult letter, um, that of Philemon, where Paul returns Onesimus, a runaway slave, to his owner. This act of returning slaves was used to support the fugitive slave law of 1850, 
where there could be punishment for not returning escaped slaves from the South back to their owners. Frankly, the Fugitive Slave Law not only resulted in the return of escaped slaves, but often in the abduction and enslavement for the first time of black freedmen across the northern half of the United States. So, appeals to the Hamitic curse, to the slavery in the Bible, and there is one final common scriptural theme that was appealed to by those theologians who would defend slavery, and that is the account of creation and Babel. Creation, of course, suggests that God creates everything good, and the themes of Genesis 1 include God separating different forms of life from one another. So sea creatures from land creatures from creatures of the air, for example. Nothing is said of different races in Genesis 1, and yet interpreters in the 17 and 1800s would argue that if the separation between land and sea animals was good, that surely the separation between different human races was good, and that God had some intended purpose there. With this theological belief in mind, many interpreted the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 uh, to actually be uh, exposing not the sin of pride, as humans attempted to build a tower to elevate themselves to the height of God, but also, or more significantly, uh, the sin of Babel was the sin of refusing to segregate, where different people groups all came together and tried to be one. God responded to this by adding language differences to ensure that segregation would continue. These were the standard racist scriptural interpretations used to buttress the institution of slavery in the United States before the Civil War and continuing Jim Crow law that resulted in inequality, persecution, and segregation in subsequent U.S. history. It is within this context that your uh, writing from Robert Clarence Lawson uh, makes more sense. So Lawson represents for us a Pentecostal theological response to the long exegetical history of racism. And I find his arguments to be very unique and interesting. We will address other common arguments shortly, but I've not seen many make the sort of appeal that Lawson does. So I wanted you to have a chance to uh, read his argument. What stands out to me as particularly important from Lawson is his treatment of the ethnic background of Jesus. And typically here we would have a discussion about this text, but for podcast purposes I'll have to settle for just summarizing some of the key features for you. Lawson points out that Luke has Shem in the genealogy of Christ. Ruth is a Moabite. Uriah, the Hittite's wife, or Bathsheba, as you probably know her, may have in fact been a Hittite herself. This would be a descendant of Ham and of Canaan. Rahab is a Canaanite. So looking at the combination of these descendants, it could arguably be the case that Jesus is of the lineage of not only Ham and Shem, but also Japheth. If that's the case, then in Christ, all peoples of the world are joined into one. Christ is not merely the representative of white Christians descended from Shem, but of all humanity descended from the three sons of Noah. So on this account, the Savior is the Savior of all peoples. And in sinless Christ, we actually have the ultimate act of racial integration 
and contrary to the sinful acts of segregation so prevalent in the history of this country. It's a fascinating theological move, and I think it's an aspect of Christology that is underdeveloped even to today, many decades after Lawson first wrote. Well, I want to provide you some more historical black theological responses to the institutions of slavery and subsequent Jim Crow legislation. If we go back to the 1700s and 1800s, most slaves were initially denied the right to learn to read. Early in the 1600s, slave laws were less restrictive, but as numbers of slaves increased, fear of white slave owners that there might be revolt, for example, caused there to be a crackdown and further limitation of rights. This is not to say that people in the 1600s had many rights, but that those in the 17 and 1800s had even the few rights that were preserved in the 1600s stripped away from them. The result of this is a growth in separate and distinct seminaries and denominations. We've already briefly mentioned the emergence of the AME Zion Church, for example, in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, but Black Baptists and Black Wesleyans and Black uh, Black variants of many denominations in the United States began to emerge because of white congregations' unwillingness to fully integrate uh, the sanctuary and the pulpit. Now, within this context, a lack of education uh, resulted in very few books being published uh, by black Christians in the United States. There are certainly notable exceptions and a number of different publishing companies are starting to retrieve these documents and make them available again to the wide public. But several decades ago, in the 1960s and 1970s, theologians first began to pay attention to slave spirituals as an important theological source. You see, spirituals, or the songs that would be sung by slaves and later by freedmen, um, contained a profound theological response to everything that they were experiencing. I have some of these spirituals printed out on slide number eight. But typically, the spirituals combined an emphasis on God's righteous eschatological judgment with a hope for the liberation of those who were currently oppressed in this world. New Testament eschatology is consistently concerned with the reversal of fortunes, where the last will become first and the first will become last. So this appeal to eschatology represents one facet of black theological responses to uh, white theological distortions and sins. I should have said this earlier, but a quick note on terminology here. Uh, for whatever reason, it is typical of most theologians to speak of black theology and not African-American theology. So that's the pattern that I've tended to follow in this course, um, and one that you might want to follow as well in your academic studies. But in general, whenever you're discussing any particular ethnic group, it's always ideal in other contexts to yield to their preferred terminology. Uh, so I'll leave that up to you to discover uh, what your own generation prefers. Back to theological responses by black Christians and particularly Pentecostal Christians. One thing that happened is that the Exodus tradition began to be centered uh, within the understanding of God among black Christians. Egyptians, after all, were racist. Genesis 43 tells us that they would not eat with Hebrews. Genesis 46 tells us that they detested shepherds. The Hebrews were associated 
with the skill of being shepherds, whereas Egyptians typically did not practice this, largely for uh, climate and environment differences. Of course, obviously, Egypt enslaved the Israelites, but God sided with the Israelites to deliver them from Egypt. This was taken to be not merely a coincidental circumstance of history, but an act by which God revealed his nature and character. God is a God who liberates the slave and who sides with the victims of prejudice and racism. In that case, God is a God of the black peoples of the United States and other former European colonies. Black theology, besides the constructive appeals to the genealogy of Christ, to eschatology, and to the Exodus, also took uh, painstaking efforts to dismantle white exegesis of passages that suggested that slavery and segregation were ethical. For example, the Hamaitic curse, in which Ham does not cover his father, and so Noah curses Canaan. Commentators among black Christians were quick to point out that the curse was given by Noah and not by God, which can at the very least lead us to question whether or not this is a valid curse. After all, we have many other examples in the Old Testament of humans cursing their opponents. One thinks, for example, of the representatives of Assyria who are threatening Hezekiah uh, and promising curses to him. And yet God delivers the Israelites and Hezekiah, clearly not honoring the Assyrian curses against Israel. Perhaps Noah's curses here are equally invalid. Second of all, the curse was said to apply to Ham's son Canaan, but not explicitly to all of Ham's descendants. So not Cush, not Put, and not Egypt. Cush was later in the Bible associated with Assyria, Put with Libya and Ethiopia, uh, and Egypt. Well, that means Africans are actually descended, according to the biblical account, from Put and not from Canaan, which means applying the curse of Canaan to African slaves is a mistake. Third, as has already been pointed out, Lawson makes the point that Canaan has descendants that are part of Jesus's lineage, Moabites, for example. If that is the case, then we cannot say very clearly that all the descendants of Canaan are cursed, for Jesus himself is certainly most blessed. So the Hamaitic curse is not a very strong exegetical foundation to build a racist system on. Black theologians would add to this critique of the Hamaitic curse a clear understanding that slavery in Old Testament times was a far cry different from slavery as practiced in the United States and elsewhere around European colonies and European nations. This slavery is known as chattel slavery and included basically ownership of anyone who was enslaved. So the slave's children would remain owned by the slave owners and their grandchildren would remain owned by the slave owners in perpetuity. This was not necessarily the case in Old Testament slavery. Furthermore, Old Testament slavery was not generally race-based. There were exemptions of Israelites from being enslaved, uh, but that was thought to be not a product of their racial superiority or racial difference, but simply a byproduct of the fact that they had been promised the Holy Land by God, whereas other lands had not. 
Third, slavery in the Old Testament was typically a byproduct of falling uh, into financial difficulties where you lacked any opportunity to provide for yourself. So you would become a bond servant, basically a permanent employee for another family who would then take care of you financially. Those were not the reasons for slavery within this country. Slavery in this country was thought to be exploitative, uh, race-based, discriminatory, and abusive. Speaking of abuses, the Old Testament has a number of regulations that prevent you from harming your slaves in various ways, and regulations related to the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath year that would require you to free bond servants after a time and provide them an economic means to restart their life independently. Similar institutions never occurred in the United States, where those who were enslaved were not freed and often lacked any human rights. Based on these arguments, black theologians said that the white biblical case in defense of slavery and segregation was intolerable. Pentecostals added to this an appeal to pneumatology. In Joel 2:28, Joel had prophesied that God would pour his spirit out on all peoples. So in Acts 2, when God-fearing men from every nation heard their own languages and their own tongues, and Peter interpreted this event by appeal to Joel 2, we have strong evidence that that spirit is now intended for all peoples. Baptism of the spirit among Pentecostals, therefore, was taken to integrate and unite people of all races. In other words, when you receive the Holy Spirit in a powerful way that manifested in tongues or prophecy, the result was not only these spiritual gifts, but a spiritual transformation that fully united you with all other baptized in the Spirit Christians, so that no racial distinction persisted. As Galatians would say, there is no longer any Jew or Gentile in Christ Jesus. With this theological response to racial division, slavery, and segregation in the United States, the groundwork was laid for the civil rights movement being launched within the black church in the United States in the 1960s. But that's well outside of the time period we're considering in this class. With this theological discussion done, I want to leave us with a few lessons that we can learn from the revivalists and the Wesleyans and the Pentecostals concerning sanctification in the context of these larger, larger discussions of racial hierarchy versus egalitarian equality. Four lessons here. First, in ethics, we cannot divorce isolated Bible verses or stories from the larger horizons of biblical ethics. What we see white Christians who defend racism doing is taking isolated instances like the curse of Ham and focusing on those isolated instances while neglecting the broader biblical vision about the mission of God to all peoples and places. Second, supersessionism, which treats something other than Israel as functionally the same as Israel before God, is theologically wrong and problematic. Europe had begun to see itself as God's chosen people, instead of Israel as the chosen people of God. And this problem manifested not only in the racism evident in the slave trade, but also through various racist components of colonialism and even the anti-Semitism uh, found up through the Holocaust and beyond. It's important that we recognize, though the church has many prerogatives and is in certain senses the new Israel, this does not mean that the promises to the old Israel now apply fully 
to new Christians. There's a difference here. We will never be the biological descendants of Abraham unless, of course, we are biologically Jewish. Third, no aspect of salvation can be so spiritualized that it's detached from historical, social, and political significance. The revivalists were able to bring about a great spiritual transformation among many Christians who became more pious, more devout, more active in church, more prone to reflecting on their prayer life. And at the same time, the same culture became increasingly uh, racist and unjust. If we do not connect our theology with its political and social significance, then we fail. Fourth and finally, we must seek to learn from and empower those who read the Bible from different ethnic, cultural, and social locations. Yes, there were white Christians who opposed slavery. Yes, there were also white Christians who opposed segregation in this country. However, it is actually black theologians who did the best and strongest work to dismantle the ideology of white racist theology. If we don't read peoples from various ethnic and cultural groups, we will likely be unable to overcome the sins of our own culture, like racism as a component of white American culture, historically speaking. So, four lessons to take home from this. This concludes my discussion of the doctrine of sanctification and its relevance for the social context of segregation in the United States. Starting in our next lessons, we will move to a more global scale and see about the resurgence of global Christianity. Talk to you then, and be well.